Welcome to Common Home Conversations Beyond UN75, a series by the Planetary Podcast. In Common Home Conversations, you will hear from leading global experts on how the proposal of recognizing the existence of an intangible global common without borders can change our relationship with our planet. The Common Home of Humanity has proposed an ambitious new global pact for the environment. The adverse effects of climate change span across borders and beyond territories. Recognizing the Earth system as a common heritage of humankind is the first step in restoring a stable climate, a visible manifestation of a well-functioning Earth system. This proposal's cascading effects would be systemic and tremendously impact international relations and economics, opening the doors to restoring a well-functioning Earth system. Common Home Conversations is the place to discuss a new social contract between society, economy, and the Earth system. Now, here is your host, founder and CEO of the Planetary Press, Kimberly White. Hello, and welcome to Common Home Conversations. Today, we are joined by Maria Espinoza, president of the 73rd session of the United Nations General Assembly. She also served as the Ecuadorian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Coordinating Minister of Human Heritage, and Minister of National Defense. Ms. Espinoza is the first ambassador of the Common Home of Humanity. Thank you for joining us. Now, Ms. Espinoza, you have been a real trailblazer throughout your career. You were the first woman to become the permanent representative of Ecuador to the United Nations, and you were the first female Latin American to become president of the United Nations General Assembly and only the fourth woman to hold that position in the 75-year history of the United Nations. Tell us, what was it about the proposal from the Common Home of Humanity that stood out to you and made you decide to become their first ambassador? Well, it's uh, been such a privilege to be uh, requested by the Common Home of Humanity to become their first ambassador, goodwill ambassador, I would call it, uh, because I think that they are looking at... Uh, the Earth system, uh, the planet as a holistic um, container of relationships. And I am convinced that one of the, uh, the core uh, redefinitions that we need currently is uh, to think about a new pact between society uh, and a planet Earth. Uh, we need a new social contract among humans to establish not only uh, harmony in our relationships between uh, between our humankind, but in our relationships uh, with with our planet. Because uh, unfortunately, uh, we have uh, taken uh, nature and its cycles for granted. Uh, the the rights uh, of uh, of nature, meaning nature not uh, as an object that we can use endless, uh, affecting and harming its its uh, cycles, uh, its right uh, to regenerate and to live uh, simply. No, so uh, I saw uh, in the Common Home of Humanity proposal this uh, holistic view, the systemic view of planet Earth, but also uh, the possibility of advocating for a new social contract between humans and nature. 
We would love to learn more about what inspired you. Your educational background began in linguistics and then Amazonian studies, and you actually spent some time in the Amazon with some of those local communities. Can you tell us more about that and the impact it had on your career? Well, I think that uh, my first contact with the Amazon region was uh, was a life changer, uh, quite honestly. Um, that was uh, at the very beginning of, of my career, I was offered a position to assess uh, the uh, bilingual education uh, systems in the Amazon region in, in Ecuador and uh, uh, a general assessment of the Amazon at the time. That was, uh, well, long time ago, around 87 or so. And um, my experience and work experience were, was more in the highlands. I was fascinated by ethnolinguistics and the connection between language and culture, but more in the highlands. And that opportunity that led me to the Amazon completely changed, uh, you know, my entire, you know, passion uh, for the Amazon, for the connection between uh, Amazonian indigenous peoples and their environment. I understood very quickly that language was only a vehicle, uh, a means uh, of communication, but what was fascinating to me was to discover this uh, very close connection between indigenous peoples' lifestyles and cultures and wisdom and knowledge through language, but regarding the natural environment. In so many indigenous, uh, Amazonian indigenous languages, you have, for example, so many different words to mean green. You know, in, in Westerners, uh, us, uh, we, we say green and it's green. No, they identify dark green, light green, different types of forest using, you know, different nomenclatures uh, for, for green. A very, you know, fascinating taxonomies for, for traditional medicine, for agriculture, uh, and it was an eye opener. I, I was fascinated by by that, and I was uh, so much then uh, connected and attracted uh, to uh, to this uh, relationship between culture, uh, nature, and, and policy making. And that's what changed uh, very much the path of my career from linguistics to ecology to geography into this degree on Amazonian studies that was perfect at the time. And, and as I spent several years working in the Amazon, working with indigenous peoples uh, in uh, small projects to improve their income, to connect, uh, you know, indigenous peoples to, you know, more economic opportunities to improve the quality of their education, uh, the access of young indigenous women and, 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 uh, and men to uh, universities, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that was at the end of the 80s. Uh, I also joined uh, forces with indigenous organizations of the Amazon uh, in their struggle for their territorial rights, um, which is a, a big thing. And, and it was, I would say, a, quite a successful struggle because you know, a, a big part of the uh, uh, Amazon, especially in Ecuador, belongs uh, to indigenous peoples. Uh, they do have 
collective rights to their territories. So I was also, in a way, in a very modest way, but, uh, you know, part of that uh, struggle, I worked with indigenous women a lot in their, you know, economic empowerment, political empowerment. Uh, I worked with indigenous women in preparation. <laughs> that was also, you know, a long time ago, but to prepare their participation and involvement with the, the Beijing conference. Uh, 25 years ago. So uh, it's been, you know, uh, you know, a love story uh, with, uh, with the Amazon, with uh, Amazonian indigenous uh, peoples in the Amazonian indigenous organizations. And indigenous peoples play a very important role in combating the climate crisis. Approximately a quarter of the world's land surface, which is home to some very important carbon sinks, is owned or managed by indigenous peoples. Do you think that the proposal from the Common Home of Humanity can help to support indigenous peoples and the protection of their lands? Well, I think that um, you're bringing a, a very critical issue to the conversation, which is climate change and how is that our human societies are responding to this critical challenge. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't even call it challenge anymore. It's, it's a climate crisis, what we are uh, facing so it's a whole of society responsibility, but of course, uh, above all of, of, uh, of our leaders. Any, every report that you read, even the pre-COVID reports on uh, implementation of the 2030 Agenda and the Sustainable Development Goals, on implementation of uh, uh, the, the Paris Agreement, we see that there is a huge uh, emissions gap. And by the way, there is a report called <laughs> the emissions gap uh, report saying that we are not doing our homework properly. So if we continue with the same trend, uh, you know, the, the, the climate uh, crisis is going to wipe out our economies, our future, uh, our ecosystem services, everything. So uh, it's going to create massive movement of people, massive migration, climate refugees, and not by the hundreds, but by the millions, if things continue as they are. And we were speaking about the Amazon. Yes, uh, the Amazon is a huge carbon sink. And unfortunately, we, uh, we are seeing, you know, frightening devastation. Uh, destruction of the Amazon basin. And uh, this is, uh, does not only affect climate change, speeds up climate change, but really, you know, that uh, kind of, of, of depletion and destruction really uh, has an impact in the lifestyles and livelihoods of local communities and indigenous peoples of the Amazon. So the situation is not very promising, but we shouldn't lose hope. Uh, you know, I'm a stubborn optimist uh, i still believe in the power in the power of cooperation of solidarity of a strong multilateral system of the role of the united nations of the possibility of of really building this uh, new social pact which is uh, uh, the uh, the global pact of the environment which is a very very promising uh, project so the Global Pact for the Environment, which you just mentioned, was proposed and discussed for the first time during your term as UN General Assembly President. Why is this initiative so important, and what do you think the Global Pact needs to address? You know, a Global Pact uh, for the Environment 
it should be a declaration of principles. And But of course, these declaration of principles cannot be more of the same, but they need to redefine, rethink, even I would say transform uh, the relationship between society, the economy, politics and nature. I was mentioning that at the beginning, uh, Kimberly, and I think that that's exactly what the Pact for the Environment should be about. Um, it is intended not to overlap or duplicate, but uh, more to be an umbrella, you know, a, a scaffold uh, of already existing uh, multilateral environmental agreements. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, the, the, the main objective of the Pact is, um, you know, bolstering the environmental law system at all levels, uh, you know. Uh, from the local to the international to the regional. And I think that uh, a pact of that sort would be, you know, for sure, I'm convinced, a great helper to achieving uh, the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, the, the 2030 uh, agenda. Uh, so I, I think it has a tremendous potential and, and power. Just if we think that, if we only consider that there are more than 250, okay, I hope I'm not saying the wrong number, but I'm pretty sure that it's more than 250 environmental multilateral agreements that most countries have signed to. Uh, there is no mechanism of looking at environmental international law from an interconnected holistic perspective. You know, in, in other words, from, from this earth system perspective that uh, we, we are discussing and that um, the common home of humanity is using, you know, as a motto. So there is no monitoring mechanism regarding the implementation of these 250 uh, MEAs, Environmental Multilateral Agreement. So we are lacking coherence, interconnectedness, coordination. And this is a, there, I would call a, a an epistemological contradiction. I'm, I'm, I don't know if, this, if it's the right way to call it, but it is a, there is a, a profound contradiction between the subject matter, if we, we want to call it that way, uh, because nature, the environment, the earth system, uh, you know, are by definition systemic, indivisible, interdependent. So you, you cannot have 250 or more uh, multilateral agreements on the environment that are not properly interconnected, uh, where there is no accountability, where, where there is no coherence. Uh, and we, you look, it, it's uh, very strange, but we look separately. Oceans on one side, um, uh, wetlands on the other side, um, air pollution, uh, the ozone layer, you know, climate, biodiversity as, as uh, uh, separate entities. So nature does not work like that. I, I, I don't know if, if, if this, uh, a um, uh, message is clear, but you, you cannot have an international international law uh, on biodiversity and a separate on migratory species, for example. You cannot have 
um, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea on one side and the Convention on Climate on the other side. You cannot have the forest principles to deal with forests, but you know, a separate body to deal with uh, with the climate, the UN Convention on Climate Change, etc. And it's good that they continue to exist, that these conventions continue to exist, but we do need an umbrella, an, an overarching, uh, you know, a rational, a set of principles that can make sense of all these sectoral approaches to the earth system and, and nature. So I think that um, th- that is, uh, you know, a, a critical aspect, uh, you know, to to stress, to, to underline the need for a, a global pact for the environment. So would you say that we need a conceptual evolution to make it possible to address issues such as climate change that transcend borders? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the, the Earth system, ecosystems, nature, you know, they they have no clue about our national borders. If you look the ocean, the dynamics of rivers, the dynamics of forests, if you look at the Amazon forest, uh, the, the, the very existence of the Amazon forest is through their, uh, the life that happens not at the soil level, uh, but uh, up there in the green part of the forest. Uh, energy, interconnections, flux. Uh, so the idea of national borders is really artificial. So we need, when you think about the environment and when you think about the relationship between societies, uh, the economy, our uh, you know consumption and production patterns, uh, you know we should not think about a specific country or a community but about uh, the planet as a whole. And uh, in, uh, with the COVID-19, I think that we have learned, you know, a hard lesson is that we are so frail as a species, we are so vulnerable, and our strength lies on our interconnectedness and on our capacity of acting and doing together. Um, and the Earth system is our common heritage. So yes, we, we do need uh, to to upscale our uh, theoretical theoretical tools, our uh, thinking, you know, about uh, how to address, deal, and care for our common heritage, our commons, our global commons, and the atmosphere, oceans, biodiversity should be considered. Uh, our global commons. And as we learned in our interview with Will Stephan last week, we are all global citizens. It doesn't matter whether we're from the United States, Australia, Ecuador, we all live on the same planet. So it really is in all of our best interests to protect our common home. Now, we are living in an increasingly fragmented world and seeing a rise in nationalism. Given that, how do you see that the proposal from the common home of humanity can come to be realized? Well, I think that, and sorry that I'm, I'm, I'm bringing, you know, the COVID-19 crisis, uh, having a reference to that all the time, because that's the, the new world that we're living in. And it's been painful. We have lost so many lives. Uh, all the uh, dysfunctions or malfunctions of our societies have, uh, you know, 
we have seen like a magnifier glass effect, uh, looking at all the inequalities, or the difficulties, um, how important it is to have a strong state, uh, strong uh, public health systems, etc. And and I think that we have learned, perhaps the hard way, that uh, we are better when when we act. Uh, together, and these are it's not just a nice phrase. It is a matter or of life or death. In this case, it's literal. You know the the level of how much we protect ourselves, we respect others, uh, the social distancing, all the the, the precautions we need to have, uh, and all of that to care about others has been, you know, a very, very strong lesson. And the lesson is that no country is safe until every country is safe when you talk about a pandemic. But the same goes for climate change. The same goes for the extinction crisis. Uh, you know, I spend uh, several years of my career working for uh, the World Conservation Union for IUCN. And... Um, there was the red list of of uh, species that were about uh, to go extinct, but this list, instead of decreasing, has uh, you know uh, increased uh, in an in, you know amazing, uh, incredible way. And when you look at all the assessments, uh, environmental assessments. Uh, the two weak points are, you know, the extinction crisis, the loss of biodiversity, and, uh, and of course, the, the, the climate crisis. And, and believe me that these are not issues that can be solved by one country alone or by one president or leader alone. It really requires a strong uh, multilateral system, uh, a strong uh, concerted action. That is concerning. The COVID-19 pandemic has really, in a way, shown us how interconnected we are as we face the same global problem at the same time, just like climate change. Now, in June, you joined a group of world leaders that were calling on the G20 to further the implementation of the G20 Action Plan and have a more strongly coordinated global response to the health, economic, and social emergencies that we face. What actions should the G20 take to address not only the global pandemic, but also the climate crisis? Well, I think, well, the G20 is a group of powerful economies around the world. Uh, I would say the, the, the 20 uh, strongest and more powerful uh, countries and, and, and economies. Uh, and it means that they have a, a special responsibility to address uh, the, the the key the key challenges uh, of of humanity, uh, not only uh, to respond to the COVID crisis, but in terms of um, the uh, uh, economic recovery packages by the billions, eleven uh, trillion dollars of uh, recovery packages for uh, you know the, the richer countries. So um, my worry but also my hope is that these economic recovery packages are going to invest in areas that are greener that are more sustainable that guarantee uh, safe employment uh, uh, employment with with dignity and under the right standards uh, and um, 
guarantee also uh, solidarity and cooperation with the global south in terms of their bilateral debts uh, with the developing countries, in terms of uh, providing the necessary funding to the Green Climate Fund, uh, meeting their commitments under the Paris Agreement, uh, uh, their mitigation targets, they, their nationally uh, determined contributions, etc. And uh, we have seen that some countries are very serious about it, you know, and the very serious mean to be to become carbon neutral uh, countries by 2050. Unfortunately, the, the, the last um, CO2 em- gap emissions report, it's not called like that, sorry, but, uh, you know, it's, I think it's called emissions gap report of, uh, of, of last year. It's, it's very clear that G20 countries are not all, you know, meeting their commitments and targets. So th- they are wealthier, they have, they, th- these countries have more means, uh, are powerful in the international arena. And therefore, they have greater responsibility domestically, regionally, but also in solidarity and cooperation with the global south. Okay, so you mentioned the emissions gap report. I believe that report found that global greenhouse gas emissions need to fall by more than seven points. I think it was 7.6% each year over the next decade if we're going to meet our goals for the Paris Agreement. Now, the G20 represents nearly 80% of global emissions, so it's imperative that, as the Secretary General says, that they really increase their ambition and increase their climate action. And I feel the COVID-19 recovery efforts offer us an opportunity to do just that. And now we're already seeing several nations call for that green recovery. Indeed, I think that. And the green recovery, of course, um uh, requires, you know, uh, low carbon recovery, but uh, the green recovery uh, also means green jobs, fair jobs, means to have women and men uh, get the same salaries for the same jobs, uh, you know, to, to really uh, close um, the, uh, the gender salary gap, which is now uh, more than 20%. Uh, you get 20% less uh, uh, less salary just because you're a woman, even if you do the same job and you have, you know, the same uh, qualifications. So the green recovery, I think it's, uh, and when you we speak about the, the uh, global green new deal, etc., it's, it's a shorthand for uh, a new era in, uh, in our uh, way of living, you know, in our way of... Uh, it's it's a new paradigm. It's it's a new development paradigm at, at the end of the day, uh, that is free of discrimination, that is free of uh, of exclusion, that really walks the talk on this phrase of the twenty thirty agenda, leaving no one behind. Uh, it's um, it's uh, you know societies that are um, climate conscious, environment conscious earth system conscious. And uh, I think that the best help we can have is this umbrella of principles, uh, which uh, basically is the aim of the Global Pact for the Environment. You have been a real champion for gender equality, and we've touched on that a little bit throughout our conversation. I think that one of the most powerful change agents that society overlooks is women. 
Dee believed that advancing gender equality and empowering women can deliver cross-sectoral, long-term solutions and results to the climate crisis. Oh, absolutely, Kimberly. And not only, uh, you know, to respond to the climate, climate crisis, uh, I think that um, there has been, uh, uh, you know, I don't know how many studies, numbers, data showing that societies that are uh, more equal and that uh, have consciously uh, closed uh, the the gender uh, gap uh, and the, the the equality gap are countries that are more peaceful. Uh, let's only remember uh, the uh, uh, acknowledgement of the UN Security Council that connected climate change uh, to the women, peace and security agenda, for example. Um, that, that was acknowledged internationally, uh, the, uh, the resolution on women, peace and security uh, is uh, having its 20th birthday this October. And there is a strong connection between uh, climate, security, uh, and the role of, of, of women. And uh, there is also a strong connection between, uh, there is uh, an index that is called, the I think it's the peacefulness index. And the countries that, uh, you know, perform better on gender equality and women empowerment are in general uh, countries that have a peace index that is higher, that are more peaceful uh, societies. And, and that is a fact. Um, but unfortunately, uh, the, the situation with women, women's rights and women empowerment, it's not really uh, very promising. It's the same as with, with, with climate. Um, and, and here there are figures that are staggering. Uh, 35 million women in need of humanitarian aid. And uh, 35 million, that, that's a lot. And one in five refugee women experience uh, sexual violence in their, when we speak about uh, women refugees, for example. So, you know, the, the numbers are not right in terms of violence, in terms of conflict. And very few, less than 7% women in uh, uh, the peacekeeping operations, very little, um, you know, I think it's less than 7% of women participating or being active in peace processes worldwide. When, you know, evidence shows that when women are involved in, involved in peace processes, the agreements are more likely to last longer. And this is just uh, very, uh, uh, you know, concrete uh, data and, and, and evidence that is uh, out there. You have, uh, I think it's 85, 86 countries out of the 193 countries that have never had a woman as a, as a head of state or government. And um, a little more than 20% women in, uh, in government cabinets. Uh, if you look at uh, women parliamentarians, uh, it's less than 25%, meaning that 75% of parliamentarians worldwide are still men. So in, in, in this, um, what is important here, Kimberly, is it's not about arithmetics. 
is not about numbers. It's not only about that. But if we are half of the world's population, we, we deserve to be represented, you know, 50-50 at least. And it's not happening. Uh, and it's not, uh, I was saying, not only a, a matter of, you know, meeting the quota, meeting the 50%. It is that us women, we, we bring quality. We bring different perspectives. We, we bring, you know, efficiency. It is a value. Our work and contribution to society gives a value added to our democracies as well. So it is not only about quantity. It's about quality. And it's been proven in all fields and areas of uh, our social and economic uh, life. It has been true. If you look, for example, at successful countries in terms of handling, managing, and responding to the COVID crisis, you know, there are incredible examples of, of women, female heads of state and government. Look at New Zealand, look at Finland, look at Iceland, look at Barbados, uh, and the incredible leadership of Mia Motley, uh, not only as Prime Minister of Barbados, but but as the chair of uh, the Caribbean community. And uh, here we can, uh, you know, have more more examples, successful examples of the handling of the pandemic by women heads of state and government. So it's not only a tokenistic thing, you know. And we are, uh, this year, we are commemorating the 25 years of the Beijing the historical uh, Beijing conference and its platform for action. And I have the privilege to sit in the steering committee of the Beijing Plus 25. There is a lot of movement among the, the feminist uh, world. Uh, there is uh, the, the, the Generation Equality Forum is uh, in the making with a incredible participation and voices from civil society. Um, six action coalitions, including a, a coalition on climate, on the environment, and a, a very important process for a new compact on women, peace, and security. So there is movement, uh, strong voices for from women uh, worldwide. Uh, I have the privilege to serve as a goodwill ambassador of FILAG, which is uh, the Fund for Indigenous Peoples of Latin America and the Caribbean. And there is a lot of movement uh, from Indigenous women of the Americas as well. So uh, there is hope uh, and there is hope, there is uh, opportunity. And uh, we have had the chance, you know, for for time, for, for dialogue and, and for creativity. And all this, I think, uh, really... Uh, gives a, a more, you know, opportunity, possibility, and push to uh, the much-needed global pact for the environment. That reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland. She once said that if we took away the barriers of women's leadership, we would solve the climate change problem a lot faster. I think that's true about a lot of things we face as a society. Hundred percent. Uh, you know, we, we share, I have the privilege to share so many spaces with, with Mary Robinson and, and I have a great admiration and respect for her, for her, for her uh, contribution to the international arena. And 
she has uh, really walked the talk in a way. Um, so um, I, I think she's totally right. You know, uh, when women were given the opportunity, they showed talent and efficiency to deal with the COVID-19. And uh, when uh, we are given the opportunity, uh, I'm convinced that we will be a great contribution to, to fight climate change and to overcome the climate crisis. That's for sure. Absolutely. I think it's really imperative that we recognize the gender climate connection more globally as well as locally. And now let's, let's talk more about the common home of humanity. The magnitude and urgency of the pending climate catastrophe calls for a mechanism to design and implement global public policy, the creation of instruments and institutions that enable collective action. Will establishing global legal support, such as recognizing the Earth system as a common heritage of humankind, help us to avert this catastrophe? Well, I, I think that, uh, first of all, uh, I think that we all agree, and we have mentioned that before as well, uh, you know, climate, the way I see it is that the climate crisis is not the problem. By itself, and, and, and I hope that um, this doesn't lead to misinterpretation, but it's not the problem, it is the symptom. It's like when you have a fever, high fever, uh, that's the symptom. And, and, and that very much, you know, connects with what, uh, you know, high fever of the planet. That's exactly what climate change is about. Is about. So I like that. It is the symptom. Yeah, exactly. It is the symptom. But then you have to, to, to see why is that you have a high fever, the symptom. Either you have an infection, you have the COVID-19, uh, you know, something is wrong. And the something is wrong is precisely, you know, our production and consumption patterns. What is wrong, the problem, is our development model. And that is what we need to fix. So climate change is an indicator. The extinction crisis, um, you know, the fires in the Amazon are symptoms that society, our human society is dysfunctional. I am sorry to say that, but that's exactly what we need to fix. And to think about our global commons, our shared responsibility. The need for concerted action is, is what is, it's really going to fix, you know, the symptom. So if you don't understand that you have the COVID-19 and, and you need a treatment, your fever is not going to go away. You know, if you have an infection, if you don't take antibiotics, I, I don't take antibiotics that much. I'm, I'm, I'm more. Uh, you know, closer to the, to other types of medicine, but, you know, let's see, you know, you take antibiotics and you decrease your fever, you decrease the symptom, but I don't know how much that you have healed your infection. And, uh, sorry to use this metaphor, but, uh, sometimes we need to realize that, uh, you know, climate change is not about, again, arithmetics of mitigation, arithmetics of uh, decarbonizing um, the economies and, and, and decarbonizing 
uh, our production and in, in, in our functioning as a society. Uh, it is a matter of a culture, of an attitude towards our global commons. And, um, and I think that's exactly what it comes into play when we think about the need of an overarching set of principles about this global path for the environment. And this has to be part of this new post-COVID-19 social contract. So I think that um, that is the opportunity that we have been given, uh, you know, by the terrible, painful pandemic that we are undergoing, uh, you know, currently. And um, I think that we need to address the the very definition and agree on a functional operational definition of the global commons and how is that we need to manage in a sustainable, responsible way our global commons. Um, that's perhaps uh, what is at the core of, of this. I think that was a great metaphor to explain the issues we are currently facing. What do you think we need to do as a society moving forward? Well, I think that we need to uh, we need a whole, you know, waking up of, of societies, but especially of young people. Uh, I am sure that uh, young leaders, youth in general, they have been, you know, affected terribly by the current uh, economic crisis. Uh, unemployment, um, insecurity, fear, has hit and affected everybody, as we said, but in a particular way, you know, the vulnerable uh, groups. And in particular, uh, I don't consider, of course, women among the vulnerable because, but, uh, it, but uh, you know, 50% of the world's population. The same goes for young people. And, and I think that uh, sometimes I, I hear you know, but what is the UN going to do? What is the government going to do? What is X or Y? Our leaders need to act. And I agree. Uh, we need strong leadership. We need um, cooperation and collective action. But we need uh, also citizens' uh, involvement uh, to exercise uh, our, our condition as, as global citizens. And we all have a role to play. We should all become advocates of this new uh, social contract between societies and nature, of the need to have a global pact for the environment. So what I would say that it is a call to, to humanity, to, to citizens around the world, to be uh, you know, more aware and more responsible and more active. Uh, in this conversation and we should uh, you know make sure that we don't leave anyone behind but not only in achieving the 2030 agenda of the sustainable development goals but you know leave no one behind the opportunity to building back better collectively absolutely it's time that we shift away from business as usual that's what got us in this mess in the first place. So this is really a great time to take this opportunity to build back better. And I think that the proposal from the Common Home of Humanity provides us with a framework to support those efforts. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And we are going to continue to work 
uh, together to, to make it happen. And I think we should use all this, our spaces of, of, of influence. Uh, you know, I say that in a, in a very modest and humble way, but, you know, in the, when, in the places that we interact and now we interact a lot. Unfortunately, using Zoom and other platforms, but uh, we should make sure that we convey the, the message. Uh, we, we we have to make sure that to to become, you know, we should all be, you know, ambassadors of a new world that is more uh, humane, that is more sustainable, that is more respectful, that is more. Um, grounded in, in solidarity and, and love because uh, that's, I think, what, what we need uh, today. And, and, of course, to push, to push uh, our leaders to take the responsibility as well. And uh, I'm a strong defender also of, uh, of uh, the work of the United Nations. I think uh, the UN is irre- irreplaceable. We are commemorating the 75 years of its uh, foundation, uh, and I think that uh, it's our common home, just to use, to paraphrase the common home for humanity, but that, that's our umbrella. And I think that when I'm told, but the UN should do this and that, and I say, well, but who is the UN? You know, the UN, we are the UN. Uh, we are responsible for its future and for improving its performance from different corners and paths of life. But we are the UN. It's our creation. And that's why we should defend and improve how it performs. All right. Well, there you have it. As we embark into life post-COVID-19, we have the chance to build back better through the power of cooperation, solidarity, a strong multilateral system, and a new social contract between ourselves and nature. The proposal from the Common Home of Humanity will help bolster our environmental law system, providing the necessary framework to address the issues we face as a global community moving forward. That is all for today, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Common Home Conversations Beyond UN75. Please subscribe, share, and be sure to tune in next week to continue the conversation with our special guest, Dr. Isabella Teixeira, former Minister for the Environment of Brazil and co-chair of the United Nations Environment Program's International Resource Panel. And visit us at www.theplanetarypress.com for more episodes and the latest news in sustainability, climate change, and the environment.